Bow your heads one, one more time with me as we go to the Lord in prayer to ask his blessing on the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, you told your servant Jeremiah that you are watching over your word to perform it. Father, we can speak your word, but only you can perform your word. Only you can make it have the effect that you desire and intend. We pray, would you watch over your word now? Perform it, we pray. That we might grow together in Christian love. That Jesus might be glorified. For his sake we pray. Amen. It's been said that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. I can certainly testify to that. Indirect, very effective. Same might be said for showing kindness to parents by taking a godly interest in their children. Indirect, but often well received. We've come to the end of Jesus' public ministry in John 13, and now that Judas has already gone his own way, Jesus gives his own disciples one last long teaching discourse that will stretch all the way through John 17. This morning, we meditate together on John 13, 31-38, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, John 13, 31-38, where Jesus tells us that loving each other will be the best way to glorify Him in His absence. And yet, Jesus is going to say more than that. His point is that loving each other glorifies Jesus since God glorified Jesus for loving us. Loving each other glorifies Jesus since God glorified Jesus for loving us. We'll meditate on that point with three related thoughts. Follow along with me in your Bible as I read out loud for us, John 13, 31 to 38. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? 
Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Loving each other glorifies Jesus since God glorified Jesus for loving us. Three related thoughts that will kind of spin out that His own essence, person, and role. Since God is about to be glorified in Jesus' obedience to the death, God also will glorify Jesus in Jesus' own person, character, and role. The Father's authority is about to be glorified in the obedience of the Son's death. The Father's character is about to be glorified and vindicated in the effectiveness of the Son's death to sacrifice and to accomplish His own people's redemption. Since all that is beginning now to materialize, therefore the Father is about to glorify the Son for loving His people. And the Father will give the Son glory by raising Him from the dead, receiving Him back to the right hand of power as risen King to rule over God's kingdom and as high priest to mediate between the Father and His redeemed, blood-bought people. So the glory of the Christian God the magnificence, the splendor of the triune God of the Bible is different than any other so-called deity. The difference is that the three persons of the Trinity share glory with each other. You see that dynamic here? It's remarkable. There's no competition in the Trinity. The Son glorifies the Father by His obedient sacrifice that executes the Father's plan to save a people for Himself. And the Father, in turn, glorifies the Son for loving His chosen people all the way to His own crucifixion. If there is glory in sacrifice, there is no greater glory than God the Father sacrificing His own eternal Son to save sinners who rebelled against His law and love. And if there is glory in humility, 
It is nowhere better seen than in Jesus' humility at the cross. And if there is glory in sharing glory, it is nowhere better seen than in the glory shared between God the Father and God the Son. This glory is worthy of your worship. There's no other God like that. But in verse 33, Jesus' heavenly glory implies his earthly absence. He's about to leave them, and so he warns them gently in verse 33 as a teacher or as a teaching father notifies his naive children with an affectionate kind of authority, with an authoritative kind of affection. The idea, the father glorifying the son at once of verse 32 leads Jesus to notify his disciples that he is only with them a little while longer in verse 33. He's referring to the resurrection. No one can follow Jesus where he's going, whether his enemies or his disciples. His enemies couldn't follow him because of unbelief. Jesus had said they would die in their sins. But in what sense are Jesus' own disciples unable to follow him where he's going when they've followed him thus far already? Is it just a temporary inability? You're not yet able? Or not able yet? Is it a moral inability? They're not righteous enough to follow him? Is it an essential inability? They can't handle it in their merely human constitution. Is it authoritative? They don't have the authority or the privilege to follow where he's going because they're not him. Or is it our favorite answer from Wednesday night studies? All of the above. Well, at least a partial answer from the context is verse 36 where Jesus tells Peter, you are not able to follow me now, but you will follow afterward. If the temporality is the focus of the inability, then the reason for the temporality is the evangelistic thrust of loving one another in verses 34 to 35. You are not able to follow me now because it's not time for you to follow me yet and I still have things yet for you to do in order to witness to my love. It will be time to follow me later and you will be able to follow me later. But the time now is for loving one another in order that the world will know that you are my disciples. And yet the inability in verses 37 to 38 is also, at some level, essential or spiritual. They are not strong enough now to follow him. Peter's not. Because they do not have the Spirit of God poured into their hearts, and so they all deny or abandon him. And it's for this reason that Jesus has to go to heaven before we can. What Jesus must do for us, he must do without us. Because what he must do is beyond us. We cannot follow him in that. We cannot follow him to heaven 
until he dies for us without us on earth. We can't even love each other as he's calling us to until he has loved us to the death and been raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father so that he could pour out his spirit into the hearts of his trusting people in the church so that they can love each other and want to. So the connection between glory in verses 31 and 32 and love in verses 34 to 35 is that God is going to glorify the Son of Man not only for his obedience to the Father, but for his love for us. What we can only know this side of the cross, on our side, after the cross, is that Jesus is telling his disciples here that he's about to love them to his own death. And for that reason, the way we glorify Jesus, now that he's risen and ascended, is by loving each other as he loved us. And that leads us to our second point. We glorify Jesus by loving each other. Verses 34 to 35. In verse 34, Jesus says, A new command I give you, that you love one another. Because Jesus glorified God by loving us to his own death, Jesus has earned the authority to tell us not only who to love, but also how we should love them and why we should love them that way. Now, we are not used to being talked to like this, are we? Love each other as I loved you. In our age, we think, you can't tell me how to feel. You can't tell me who to love or why to love them or how to love them. That's my business. We get offended at this Jesus for telling us who to love and how to love and why to love. But this is the Bible. Like, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to really believe in the real Jesus, if you want your faith in Jesus to be real, you have to come to grips with the fact that he talks to you like this. He can tell you who to love and how to love them and why to love them in that way. He has the right. He bled for it. But this command is new, not because it's never been given before. We already heard it given in Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor. The newness of this command to love is in the who, how, and why of our love. Because it's Christ-centered, Christ-driven. So Jesus commands us who to love. We should love one another, all those who call themselves followers or disciples of Jesus. It's not that we should not love anyone else except those who follow Jesus. We certainly should love our unbelieving friends and family members. But it's that we should not love anyone else like we love those who follow Jesus. There's a priority here. Our love for our fellow Christians takes a certain priority. We love each other for Jesus' sake. Of course, it was pretty easy for the first disciples to know who Jesus meant by one another. <laughs> they were the only ones. It was themselves, the 11, who remained after Judas left. But 2,000 years later, after so many disciples of Jesus have been made, after so many churches have been planted, 
Who is one another for us? Who is one another for you? After all, we're only human. We have a limited, finite capacity to love. We can only love so many people effectively. With so many people now following Christ, how do we prioritize who to do this one anothering with? The best way to obey the one another's today is to focus on those who are committed to our own local church. Again, it's not that we don't love other people in other local churches. The men are about to do that at the men's retreat. We're going to get together with five or six or seven other local churches and their men. And we're going to have fellowship with them. It's going to be a great time. We're going to learn to love them better. But the local church is where we commit to doing the one anothering of the Christian life. That's what we're doing when we're signing the church covenant. I'm going to love these people. I'm going to covenant, commit to loving these particular people in these particular ways that Jesus has already commanded me to love fellow Christians in Scripture. A commitment to everyone in general is really a commitment to no one in particular, right? I mean, if I say, I love everybody in the world, you you immediately recognize I'm making a kind of specious claim. That's just empty, right? Like, you love everybody in the world? I love everybody in the world equally. (laughs) Do you now? (laughs) You can't do that. It's impossible. When we join the membership of a local church, We're committing to love these particular Christians in these particular ways specified in our covenant. Local church membership then sets a realistic limit and focus to the number of people we are committing to love in a personal, local, intentional, accountable way so that it becomes visible and real and concrete. I'm not just talking about your immediate family or extended blood relatives. Some people have come to me and said, well, can't church just be me getting together with my believing mom and dad and cousins? Well, I mean, yes, they're they're Christians, but that's not quite what Jesus means by a church. After all, Jesus had brothers in his immediate family, but he spent the majority of his time not with them, but those who followed him. So clearly, I can't love Christians in Zambia in the same way I love Christians who live off Highland Avenue or Scott Street in Elgin. I can't even love people who go to a different local church in Elgin in the same way I can love people who are members of this church. We aren't under the same preaching week in and week out. We aren't locking arms to live out the Christian life together like we are here. That's what visible local church membership is for. Membership draws a line around who it is I'm committing to love most concretely most particularly, most visibly, most regularly, most practically, most accountably. So while we pray for other churches in the area, like we prayed for them this morning, while we want to see them grow, while we may even go on men's retreats and to women's conferences with members of other churches to show our love and solidarity with them, we focus our energies and affections on the members of our particular church where we can be held accountable to love and where we can hold others accountable to love over time, 
in mutual commitment to one another that takes sacrifice and forgiveness and bearing with and not being irritable and assuming the best. Jesus also commands us how to love. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. How did Jesus love us? Well, the first disciples couldn't know it that night, but they would put it all together after the resurrection. Jesus loved them by giving up his life for them. Self-sacrifice, self-giving, self-forgetfulness, suffering, suffering their abandonment, complete commitment to them, even though they were not completely committed to him, at least not yet. Jesus gave up his earthly life for the eternal good of others. So Christian, member of Grace Covenant Baptist Church, is there anything similar in how you love other people here in this church? Could other people look at how you love other members of this church and say, that looks like Jesus going to the cross for us? Now here again, I'm not talking about how other people love you. I'm sure right now you can think of a million different ways that other people in this church have failed to love you like this. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you loving other people in this church like this. Not you pointing out everybody else's failures to love you like this. I know they've failed you. I'm sure I've failed you in loving you like this. But how are you doing in loving other people like this? regardless of how they love or don't love you. Jesus' disciples did not understand or love him like he loved or understood them. I mean, you think it's hard to love me or someone else in this church because I or they don't love you in the way that you expect? Try being Jesus. In his relationship with you or me, do we love him ever like he loves us? Still, having loved his own in this world, he loved them to the end. Is that how you love? Or will you only love on your own terms if it's convenient, if it doesn't get in the way, if you can fit it around what other things you really love more, and if everybody else loves you like you expect them to love you? Okay, then I'll love them. Jesus didn't just fit loving his disciples into what he was already doing. Jesus made that love central to what he was doing. We are to love each other that way. Otherwise, we're no different than any other nonprofit organization. We just show up for the meeting, vote yes, and go home. 
Now, this is a commandment. Loving one another in this way is not optional to Christianity. It's not extra credit. It's not kind of how you go from being a freshman to being a sophomore or a junior in discipleship to Jesus. Now, this is just basic. It's not leather and sports suspension package that you add to the base model. Love is not like a spoiler on a sports car. It's mandatory. It's the engine. Jesus has the authority to tell us to have committed affection for each other, like he has committed affection for us. You realize Jesus' love for you is not non-committal. He committed. That's why membership in a local church matters. Because you can't say, I love Jesus and not commit to the people that he committed to dying for. You just can't do that. And Jesus earned this authority to tell us how to love and to tell us to commit to loving to one another by dying for us. That's why we should love each other like Jesus loved us. John himself writes to the churches about loving each other like this in his first letter. So here he's retelling the story of Jesus, and then in his letters he's writing to the churches, saying, here's how I want you to apply this. Listen to how he talks about it. 1 John 3.11, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Verses 16 to 18 in 1 John 3. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Or 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might love through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see how your love is never more God-like and Christ-like than when it's initiating with someone who has not yet responded to your love and may not even want it to begin with. Beloved, if God so loves us, We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. You can't see God, but when you love each other like this, oh, God becomes very visible then, doesn't he? We see his character. Especially 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he he, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Do you love your brother? How would anyone know? First John 5, 1, everyone who loves God, everyone who loves God, loves whoever has been born of him. And Jesus commands us why to love. By this, all, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Isn't that interesting? All people 
will know that we are disciples, not because we love all people, but because we love one another. Jesus said that. Loving one another will be the way the world knows that you are my disciples or followers. The way you show, showed you were a follower of Jesus during his earthly ministry was by physically following him around, walking around with him, listening to him. But now that Jesus is no longer here in the flesh for us to follow him around, the way you show you are a follower of Jesus will be that you love others who are following Jesus. You show you love Jesus by loving his body, the church. That's how Jesus wants you to show that you follow him by loving each other. If you're not doing that, you're missing out. You're missing a key component of evangelism if you're not loving each other. Friends, the local church is God's evangelism program. This is it. Loving one another in the church is Jesus' plan for us to evangelize the nations. Jesus says right here that love for your fellow church members is evangelistic. It's not the only way to be evangelistic. We're training together right now in our adult ed class to use evangelistic and discipling tools with our unbelieving friends. But Jesus intends our love for each other to image and illustrate his love to us and others. So brothers and sisters, our love for each other is Jesus' evangelism program. The church is how the world will know that we love and follow Jesus. Do you want more and more people to be converted to the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Love each other. Other people's recognition of God's glory in Jesus depends on how we love each other. You cannot come here week in and week out, listen to the sermon, leave, foster relationships with no one, forgive no one, bear with no one, rejoice with no one, persevere with no one, take no one's counsel, and then think of yourself as a Christian or expect evangelistic fruitfulness in your life. Meaningless membership is fruitless membership. Churchless Christianity is loveless Christianity. And loveless Christianity is lifeless Christianity. And lifeless Christianity does not count. Now there are a lot of ways we are good at loving each other in this church for which you and I should both be grateful. Cooking meals, attending on Sundays, praying together is becoming more of a strength and loving each other, showing hospitality, welcoming visitors, giving rides, studying scripture together, discipling one another. We're getting better and better and better at those things. And we should keep excelling in them. But I fear we missed a recent opportunity as a whole congregation to do this. Now, this might sting a little, but it's only going to sting for a minute, I promise. 
we missed an opportunity as a congregation to show the world we are Jesus' disciples by attending Donna Bonner's memorial service a few weeks ago. Donna's daughters were here for that. Donna's friends from the neighborhood were here for that. But sadly, most of her church was not here. Can you imagine what a full auditorium at that funeral or that, com that memorial service would have said to those friends? They would have said, this church loves her. This church loves Jesus. And it would have said it without a word. But instead, I'm afraid we had a mostly empty auditorium. And that said something too. Now in the church's defense, Donna is, I believe, the first member of Grace Covenant Church to die as a member of Grace Covenant Church. So we're not used to this aspect of church life together. I get that. And maybe you didn't know Donna very well. She didn't attend church during COVID. But isn't that kind of the point? I mean, did you ever try to get to know Donna while she was attending? Sat in the same pew every Sunday. Did you ever approach her? Did you ever check in on her over on Worth Street while she was not attending? Maybe call her, write her a note. Her address was in the directory. I know there's nothing we can do about it. And you are a tender-hearted congregation, so I'm assuming you probably feel awful right now. And I don't like making you feel like that. But if you're feeling any regret over not going to that memorial service, then I would plead with you, let's grow in that way. Young and middle-aged members of the church attending the funerals of older members is one way we can show people that we love like Jesus loves. Because we love people who we have no affinity with except that they love Jesus like we did. They're not in our demographic. They don't play the sport that we play. They don't watch the shows that we watch. They don't talk about the things we like to talk about. But you know what? They love Jesus. And you should love them because they love Jesus. And if you love them because they love Jesus, then when they die to go to meet Jesus, you should want to commemorate their faithfulness to Jesus and his to them with us. That's important. And it's evangelistic. So before we have another funeral, get to know and love the older members of the congregation. They love Jesus. And they've been loving him longer than you have been loving him. And so you should respect that. And you should love them for that. And the next time we have a funeral for a member that you didn't maybe know that well, make room in your heart and attend it anyway. Let's use our funerals and every other chance to show the world that we are Jesus' disciples by how we love each other.
Third. See, I knew it was going to sting, and now it's over. Third. We are still confused by Jesus' love for us. We are confused by Jesus' love for us. Verses 36 to 38. From our own feelings, even now, we can resonate with why Peter himself might want to change the subject about loving each other. That's what he's doing. Jesus has been talking about loving each other as Christians, but Peter wants to go back to this whole thing about where Jesus is going. Hey, I want to talk about eschatology. Stop talking about loving. Where are you going? Stop talking about me loving and listening. Where are you going? I don't want to love. Where are you going? Jesus, though, replies to his where question with a when answer. You're not able to follow where I'm going now, but you will follow later. In Peter's case, he will follow Jesus not only in a resurrection like his, but also in a death like his. Peter will follow Jesus to and through a literal wooden cross and only then to eternal life in heaven. For now, though, Peter remains perplexed, and his confusion is only going to intensify. Peter does not get it, so he asks why in verse 37. Why can I not follow you now? And like Peter, we are confused because we are impatient. I mean, ours is not the first generation that demands immediate gratification. Peter was demanding immediate gratification. I'll follow you. Let's go. Let's go to heaven together. I'm ready. And he didn't understand why that could not be an option. All he knew is that he wanted to be with Jesus as he had always been with Jesus, even if that meant dying for him or with him, or at least that's what he thought he knew. And yet Jesus had his own reasons for not letting Peter follow him, not least of which is that Jesus had to die for Peter before Peter would have the strength and perseverance to die for Jesus in any meaningful way. What Jesus had to do for Peter, he had to do without Peter. And Peter would need the moral character and conviction of God's spirit poured out into his heart by faith in the risen Christ in order to stay faithful to Jesus through martyrdom. He wasn't ready to do that yet. But of these things, Peter had no idea. He was just impatient. Why can't I follow you now? I want to follow you now. And can we not see ourselves in Peter's impatience? We simply cannot imagine why Jesus won't hit play or fast forward in his providence over our life and ministry. Why is this going so slow? Why don't you speed it up? Why don't you let me just come be with you now? We're perplexed at why he has seemed to leave us in this world, but we will follow Jesus to heaven later. And this is still our hope. Partly, we are confused by Jesus' love for us because we reverse our roles. Peter tells Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. I will lay down my life for you. I will lay down my life for you. Who does that sound like? That substitutionary syntax echoes and actually reverses Jesus' statement in John 10, 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Hey, Peter, I think you got the shoe on the wrong foot. You got the cart before the horse, buddy. 10.15, I lay down my life for the sheep. And similarly in 10.17, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 
It also anticipates chapter 15, verse 13, where Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus is going to do. Peter's not going to give his life for Jesus, at least not yet. Jesus must give his life for Peter. In fact, Jesus calls Peter out on his misplaced pronouns in verse 38. Will you give your life on my behalf, Peter? Peter just asked in chapter 13, verse 6, Lord, you wash my feet? Peter's pretty good at mixing up his pronouns, isn't he? He's confident and as wrong as he could be here. Jesus turns Peter's pronouns back on him. You will lay down your life for me? What's wrong with that statement, Peter? And yet we, like Peter, all too often mistakenly reverse the roles in our relationship to Jesus. We don't always do it this clearly, but we do it. We think it's more important for us to serve and sacrifice for Jesus when in fact there is no serving or sacrificing for Jesus unless he has first served and sacrificed himself for us. Unless our faith is firmly fixed in Jesus' sacrificial death for you and me, all of our serving of him and all of our sacrificing for him and for each other is going to be totally misguided. We're going to have the wrong attitude, the wrong motive, the wrong aim, the wrong reason, the wrong hope. We will only be deceiving ourselves, just like Peter. Our service is based on Jesus' service to us, not his service based on ours. Isn't that how you sometimes live the Christian life? Oh, I didn't serve you very well, so I wonder if I'm safe. Oh, I didn't serve you very well. Do you still love me? Oh, I didn't serve you very well. Am I a Christian? I didn't serve you very well. I better not pray right now. I better not read my Bible right now. I might get struck by lightning because I haven't served them very well. Are you kidding me? Go read your Bible. He died for you. He served you first. He gave his life when you were dead to him. And you think he can't bear with you? We're also confused because we overestimate ourselves. Sadly, Jesus has to predict Peter's triple denial with a double amen, truly, truly, and a double negation, at least in the original language. A rooster will certainly not, will not not crow just to get Peter to come off his confident prediction of dying for Jesus before Jesus dies for him. Peter, I'm going to tell you this, and it, it is going to sting in no uncertain terms. <laughs> you won't even make it to midnight. Peter could not be more wrong. Here again, Jesus is telling him, before it happens, so that when it does happen, they're going to believe in him. Peter's never more confident than in professing his dying love for Jesus, and nothing is more certain than that Peter is mistaken about himself. 
I would die for you. You will die for me? Watch what happens. I'll give you six hours. Christian, only genuine humility is fitting for you and me. There is no virtue in brashly overestimating or overstating our love and loyalty to Jesus in comparison to other disciples of Jesus' love and loyalty to Jesus. We will never out-love or out-sacrifice Jesus. He does not need our sacrifice. We need his. And this is why your relationship to Jesus has to be built not on what you do for him, but what he has already done for you. This is why your love for each other has to be built not on everybody else's love for you, but on Jesus' love for you. If you don't think Jesus loves you, you have no shot at loving anyone else in this room like Jesus loves them. No shot. If you're not enjoying Jesus' love, trusting Jesus' love, knowing more about Jesus' love, meditating on his love for you, why in the world do you think you would succeed in loving anyone else or have the personal security or confidence that comes from being loved by Christ in order to love other people who may not love you back? That only comes from understanding Jesus' love for you. Only when you know Jesus has loved you to the death to atone for your sins will you ever love anyone else even approaching the way that Jesus has loved you sacrificially. Because you'll always be wondering, well, what am I going to get out of it? Am I going to be okay? Am I going to look stupid? Am I going to get taken advantage of? Are my needs going to be met? What about me? What about me? What about me? Jesus took care of you, friend. That's what about you. Your what about is already done. He died for you. He atoned for your sins. He drew you near to himself. That's what about you. That's over. You're set. Bask in that. Grow in that. Be confident in that. And then love from that. Loving each other glorifies Jesus since God glorified him by loving us. You know, we sometimes honor our relatives who have died by doing things we loved them for doing, right? And then we say, well, that's what they would have wanted. That's what they would have done. Do we love Jesus? Then let's prove it to the world by loving each other. It's what he's always wanted. Let's pray together. Father, we confess we have not meditated nearly long or deeply enough on your love for us in Christ. His dying love for us. We have not believed it. We have not built our identity on it or around it. And so we have failed to love each other in so many ways. We fail to love our spouses and our children. We fail to love each other in this church. 
And so we have often failed in displaying to the world your love. So Father, would you make our love for one another a convincing testimony to the world that we really are followers of your true and eternal son, Jesus Christ. For his sake. Amen.